right, so we are in the middle. I think we're right about in the middle of our Acts series, where we've been going through the first 11 chapters. And what we've been doing is looking at the birth of the church, particularly how it started and what the church in Jerusalem looked like primarily. And the reason why we thought this would be a good thing to discuss uh, in this season is because a lot of us have been rethinking what church is for and how it's made and why we should go and the purpose of it all. And so we thought Acts would be a, uh, a timely thing to look at. And so where we're at in uh, the story of the birth of the church is the church has begun to gather. There's been some really epic moments of, of Peter doing some really amazing miracles. And that's a loud rumble. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure it wasn't a meteor or something. <clears throat> Otherwise, that takes priority. <laughs> um, do I mean that? I don't know. Is that a really heretical thing to say? Just got myself in trouble. Keep preaching even when there's meteors. I don't know. Um, so we're in the part of the story where Peter, they've healed some people, and then they've gotten in a lot of trouble, and the church is growing as a result of all of this suffering and persecution and these big messages being preached about primarily one thing. And what's being preached in the face of all these miracles and sufferings is that Jesus is the new king. He is Caesar now, and there's a new kingdom that's starting uh, that isn't of this world that Jesus is completely in charge of. And the church is the earliest representation of this kingdom of heaven on earth. And so we're at the part now in the story where the church is beginning to be a little bit more formalized. And they're starting to gather and they're having to figure out how life in the kingdom actually works. Just because the kingdom isn't, just because Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world, it doesn't mean that uh, it's in some, I don't know, uh, the fancy word would be like Gnostic, like just high-minded thinking. It's not just a kingdom of fancy thoughts. It actually manifests itself in the real world. So it's a blend of the two. And now things are getting really, there's some nitty gritty stuff happening here of going, okay, well, we've got some problems. There's the apostles who just go around preaching all the time about this guy, Jesus, who, you know, turns out that's the Messiah we've all been expecting. That's a full-time job. So they need some, some money for their funds to be, uh, uh, for, for them to be able to keep doing that. Also, a bunch of needy people had made their way into the community because Jesus's message was a lot about taking care of those sorts of people. And so logically, the church wound up having lots of people who had needs uh, within their, you know, fold. And so those people needed to be taken care of as well. So today we get to, we get to talk about how the church treated its resources how the church treated its finances and the way that it stewarded those things and for what purpose. And I think there's lots we can learn uh, about how we view our money. So after you heard that passage be read, you might have had similar questions that I've had. And so uh, we can put those questions on, on the screen. These are, these are the questions that I was thinking about. Just simple things. Uh, what made the believers of one heart and mind? At the beginning, I talked about there being, they're all together, they have one heart and one mind. What, how does, how does that happen? If you've looked at our world today, one heart and one mind feels like maybe the opposite of what's going on. So that's a pretty miraculous, uh, I don't know, character trait of the early church. That's an extreme statement. That's not a fluffy statement. It's, that's a big deal. So how did that happen? Another question, why did having one heart lead to considering the things that you owned as common? Like, why did having one heart and mind jump to, or seemingly jump to, oh, all of our stuff and possessions belong to everyone? That's, that's a bit of a jump. 
in my mind. It got real practical real quick. It wasn't just like, wait, we all love each other a ton. There's this huge jump into the real world going, all my stuff isn't, is now somehow common. It's a big question. Uh, third one, and this is probably the one that I scratch my head at the most, why was everything put at the apostles' feet? Why was the, the selling of the land and the collection of the giving, and it was all given to people? So that, that raises all kinds of questions in my mind. Why those people? Why do they get to decide where the money goes? What makes them special? Uh, shouldn't we all you know, have a vote about where all the money goes? Or shouldn't it be divided really, really evenly? And shouldn't I know exactly where that money's going before? No, they all just put it at people's feet and going, I don't know, you, you guys figure out what to do with this. I just, sold, I just sold my land, but it's your job to figure out what to do with it. That's crazy. So you should have big questions in your mind after reading this. I know I did. So I'll try to go through these one by one. Uh, the title of this message is called Kingdom Possessions. And we're going to be looking at what about possessions? How does, the, how does the idea of possessions overlap with the kingdom of heaven being here and now? And maybe you guys can be thinking, just as, we, as you listen, you can be thinking about the things that you own, the things that you cherish, the things that maybe give you security, or the trajectories that you hope to be on. Uh, I don't know, kind of take that, that thing that maybe brings you comfort or security, uh, and just kind of have that sit on your heart as we're discussing these things. Because it's easy to just go, oh yeah, land, or oh yeah, possessions. But it's helpful for us as we, we're this church. Like, we're the church too. So it's the same entity under the same king, same lord, same kingdom. So all of these things apply to us. So what gave them one heart? I mean, this is obvious. We'll breeze through this one really quickly. But they were unified by a common kingdom. They were unified by a common lord. Uh, if you remember all the way back to the first act sermon, I got to preach that one, and we talked about uh, the, the gathered church is primarily a small p political statement of who you're declaring your ultimate allegiance to be. The, the gathered church is like this is a this is a, I know my words kind of fail me a little bit, right? But it's like it's a political rally <laughs> in, uh, for a certain king. And it actually isn't primarily about you meeting God, although that happens. It isn't primarily about you finding community, although that happens. At the, at the very essence of it all, Jesus called an assembly, and we all are here to show our allegiance to him as the ultimate king of our life. Now, that means we worship, and it means we open his word, and it means we build community and make disciples and blah, blah, blah. But at the, the very core, we're saying who's actually in charge. So that is what gives us all one heart and mind. And we're unified around a few things. We're unified around Jesus as a person. We're unified around a real person who really lived, really died, really is king. That's important. And he turns out he's very good. He's a very good king that leads the people who follow him into, not even to mention eternal life, life to the full now in the way that he would define it. Very good king. We're unified around a truth that that king has actually won every battle. He's conquered death. Like, that's a, that's a serious thing to build your life on, that you're following a king who's conquered death. That's going to have some implications into every day, or at least it should, you'd think, eh? My ultimate allegiance is to this guy, Jesus, who claims that if I follow him and give my life to him, he rescues me from death itself. It, you start to see why we'd all have one heart and mind. You're like, I want to be around those other crazy people that think that. We're also unified around some eternal priorities. So, uh, yes, God gives us life to the full here and now, but also there's this heavenly mindset that we're all gathered around too, going, 
hey, we get to worship Jesus forever. And it's funny how this idea of possessions is probably one of the most helpful things to highlight how eternal you're thinking. We don't have time to go into all the verses that talks about, you know, moth and rust destroy all the things in the world. And so possessions are a really helpful window into how eternal do you think every day? How, how much is that on your mind? Possessions are an amazing window into how that's going. So some of these eternal priorities look like you saw it in the verse, gospel proclamation. The church was rallied around making sure Jesus was consistently preached as that king. And the second thing that it was doing was taking care of people, right? Because it's the kingdom here and now. We're going to start taking care of the least last and the lost now. And it's doing those two things. And that's an eternal priority of taking care of those people now. So these are the two things that our church hopes to do. We hope that Anybody who comes here or rubs shoulders with our community knows that Jesus is king and that they get taken care of and they get stitched in and that they get whole and and knit into community. So these are eternal priorities. So that's the setup. What are the implications of a kingdom theology into money and possessions? Okay, great. We're of one heart and mind. We all agree that we're going to follow the same person. We all agree on the same truths. This is great. We have eternal priorities. Now, what does that have to do? with money and possessions. In short, kingdom vision means everything belongs to God. That's point number two for today. Kingdom vision means everything actually belongs to God. This early church saw everything under God's jurisdiction. And and, and this would make sense, right? Uh, Why, if you were a king, why would you allow there to be sub-kingdoms within your kingdom? There's not allowed to be sub-kingdoms within your kingdom. That's, that's a revolt. And so we don't have good like mental architecture for kingdoms. We're so far removed from that, at least in the West, of the idea that the king, the monarch, the one who is the primary person in charge owns all of it. That's not, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that in kind of a democratic world of going, no, I have my plot of land and I have my things and the government can't touch that. And yet I need a little bit to keep the roads paved, but like, this is mine. So we don't get the kingdom thing so much, but these people, the early church totally got it, totally got the idea of everything belongs to this new king now. So it's important for us to, we have to step back into an, uh, an early sort of first century Jewish mindset, or just Rome, the Roman Empire in general, to understand why they were doing what they were doing. And they, they went, this king? Oh, now this king. And so they would have been full aware, like these people were taxed like crazy. They would have been full aware that Caesar was taking them for everything that he possibly could while still having the economy function. But it was all about, you know, Caesar was God. Caesar called himself the son of God. So they're just switching. So this is a little extreme to the modern mind. But uh, we kind of know this a little bit. Uh, like whose, whose face is on the quarter in your pocket? It's Queen Elizabeth. It's hers. It's just her. It's her money. Now, I know that we're a long, you know, the 1750s are quite a long time ago. But there's still vestiges of monarchs and kingdoms. And we all walk around with Liz's face in our pockets thinking that it's ours, and it's not. You didn't make it all. You don't run the system that allows you to have any. It 
it ended up in your pocket because someone else did stuff. It's kind of a little bit arrogant to think it's yours if you really stop to think about it. I mean, you earned it, but it's just kind of borrowed and loaned so that this whole thing can function together. It's kind of a gripping thing to be like, wow, is this mine? So we're not so much used to having allegiance to a bigger thing, like money especially is kind of this, yeah, I mean, I'll pay my taxes and I'll you know, do what I have to do to make sure that I'm not uh, like deviating from our society, like I'm not going to get in trouble, but the, especially money and possessions, that's, you don't touch that. That's mine. And we make sure of it. So there's a rebuttal to this, you know, that uh, maybe you're thinking this in your, mind, in your mind too, and I was as well, where it's this idea that give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but give to God that which is God's. So Jesus says that, right? And he says, yeah, Give Caesar that which is Caesar's and give God which that's God's. And so then we can think in our mind, okay, money's not really a part of the Jesus thing. Money is just this thing that's this unfortunate reality that, you know, exists in the world that we have to do. So give Caesar the money, but give God something else. Give God something else. Here's the thing that we have to know about this, uh, is what Jesus is saying here is Caesar may have jurisdiction over your money, but I want jurisdiction over your heart and mind. Like what you're going like to give to God, that which is God's, it's your whole heart. It's everything. It's your motivation, your affection, your love, your desire, your allegiance, your honor. All of you, the, the, the core of who you are. And so, yeah, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. It is just a coin. But give to God that which is God's because what he's really doing is he wants your heart to bear his image. He wants your heart to be kind of like the coin in your pocket, except he owns that and his face is on it. And which is, which we could go on a real cool tangent about how we're supposed to be image bearers of God, which we don't have time for today. But the idea that your heart is under God's jurisdiction and he wants to put his stamp on it because he wants it to look exactly like his. He wants us to reflect his image. And you, and, and your heart is under his jurisdiction in the kingdom because you willingly gave him your allegiance. So he wants everything. And so here's where the rub comes. Is something tells me that everything, if everything is the banner, our possessions and money and finances probably fit under the banner of everything. You know, that'd be quite a trick for us to go, you can have my whole heart and my whole, all the things, but the money thing, that's a little weird. We won't talk about that one. Like everything is everything. And so to think that we can just go, all right, money's over here and God is over here would be a very naive thought because to have his image stamped on your heart means your motivations change. The why of your life is different. Your allegiance is different. And so to think that we could segregate finances and possessions outside of the jurisdiction of our entire hearts would be a little bit silly. So here's something that is helpful to know. What Acts is not doing is giving us a prescription for exactly how we need to now operate if we join a church. It's not going, all right, well, you know, someone joins the church in the welcome class, be like, all right, well, week six is you sell land, <laughs> you sell all your possessions. Like, it's not a prescriptive idea. But the radical generosity that you see in the early church speaks to an attitude that, that they had towards their possessions and money that is very much applicable and very much prescriptive. They saw it as under God's jurisdiction because their hearts were under God's jurisdiction. So it's not prescriptive, 
And people argue about like, we need to look exactly like Acts. And, and it, it misses something more concrete of going, what's your heart towards money? Because these people were willingly doing this. It wasn't a communist thing where everyone had to pool their resources. They were willingly, they were willingly out of the attitude of their heart, out of a changed love allegiance to a new king, we're doing crazy stuff. I think that's what we're after today is what is the attitude of your heart? So, do you consider your money and possessions your own? Do you consider them as your own? You can think about that question for a second. It's kind of a deal. We don't think about these sorts of things very often. Do you think it's yours? Obviously, it's in your possession. But do you think it is yours? You can think about what is whose face is stamped on the attitude of, all my metaphors are falling apart, but you know what I mean. There's whose face is stamped on your heart. So this passage presents a solution for us when we feel confronted with the idea of where our ownership really lies. This passage gives us a really helpful thing we all get to do when we, you and I feel the rub of going, mm, my hands are clenching around all the stuff that brings me a lot of security and understanding. You know that feeling where your hands just go, and you clench around it and it just feels great because it's real and I get, yes. And all of a sudden we realize that we've done this for so long that our security and our comfort and our, our, our security and actual allegiance is to the things that we can understand and control. And all of a sudden Jesus isn't king. And that just leads to all kinds of problems that, you know, don't have anything to do with money anymore. Is it's just we've failed to give him our allegiance in every way. And money is, Jesus talks about money so much because it's just this direct to heart thing. It's hard to do things with money that don't involve your heart. And I think that's why Jesus talked about it so much. He just, I was like, well, I mean, we could just skip all the fluff and just talk about money if you want. Like, I feel like that's what Jesus was doing all the time. It's like, okay, we could talk about seeds and sowers and suns and sand, or we could just talk about money because it just kind of gets right to the point. How's your heart? He talked about it a lot, more than any other metaphor. So here's the solution that this passage presents to us and the church presents to us, is that giving is relinquishing is the relinquishing of control of your own kingdom. That's what's really happening when we give. It's a relinquishing of the ultimate authority in your and my life being us and what we can understand, what we can gather, and we can get our hands on. So the church comes along with this wonderful service to, to all of us who are trying to figure out how to fit in and put Jesus Lord. And then feel, the Holy Spirit goes, all right, we're going to bring everybody together. There's going to be a ton of needs. There's going to be a ton of, of, of resources needed to keep my kingdom going because... I'm going to give you an opportunity to surrender your kingdom to mine. And it's going to have this little painful but very practical uh, idea of, of asking for the things that bring us the most security. It's actually very kind if you think about it. If eternal life really is because we see Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if, 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 if love and relationship really is pioneered by us following him in every sense in our life. What a beautiful opportunity we have. What a beautifully practical opportunity we have to go, oh, I have another chance to do that today. So, kind of where it gets even more awkward is why give to the church? 
Why not just give to wherever you feel like you should give? Why not just give because it hurts, and then that's good because it hurt, and now my heart's good? It's not just that. It's really awkward. It's they put it at the apostles' feet. Like, you want to talk about ultimate surrender of control, give it to people who you know aren't Jesus exactly, but they kind of represent him a little bit. And these are the, these are the apostles. These are the guys who walked with Jesus. That would have been tough. 2,000 years later, who's, who put the person in charge of this church that's allowed to, to say that they're, like, now you're giving to Jesus when you give here? Wow, that's a, that's a bold statement. I just want to read one little excerpt from a commentary that I read. It says this, but what of the practice of laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet? Question mark. The gesture was one of submission to another. At this point, the 12 were representatives appointed by Christ as the foundation of the true people of God. The submission was not to them, but to the one they represented. To lay one's gifts at their feet was to offer it to Christ. This is interesting. The apostles certainly did not consider this an enviable role. They were all too glad to turn the responsibility over to others. I get that. I get that. So there's a serious lack of control that comes when we give to the church. And the lack of control is the gift because when you're in control, it speaks of an attitude that is different than the one we see in Acts 4. Uh, I have an example of this uh, in my life. So our, our church actually tithes to every nation, the network, like the, the global family of churches. We tithe. 5% goes to Canada, like every nation Canada, and 5% goes to every nation global. And this is really important because we're practicing kind of the same principle. And sometimes that hurts a little bit. We're making budgets and it's like, oh man, 10%, okay, wow. Okay, but this is good because we're doing the exact same thing. And, uh, and so, but we have to work this through. We have to work this through. And so... I got, to, uh, I got to chat with uh, um, a Pastor Steve once about this. And he said, uh, we're investing in music because our family is getting really broad and we're trying to write some stuff that brings us together and that we have some common shared experiences because things are getting wide and the family's getting huge and we need some things that we all know and say together and enjoy and some meals we can all enjoy together that we all know the taste of. And it's not the best meal, but it's mom's meal, you know? It's the one that she... And then we have some songs that everyone knows. And when I, when I go to the Every Nation, you know, pastor's clusters or when I go to the, do my master's degree stuff with Every Nation, they sing all those songs and everybody knows them. And they're led by people who can actually sing them, which is really handy. And then we get to join. And you know what? I feel closer and five years ago, Mia's like, shoot, I did the thing where I tried to uh, control it because I'm in charge and I want to know where my money's going and I want it to benefit me. See how quickly that sneaks in? We're talking about like churches given to churches and it sneaks in super quickly. Control comes to us so fast because it feels so, we're so at home when we're in control. So I think life in the kingdom is to be out of control which is the good news. That is the good news. You don't have to be in control. And so that might sound like salvation to you or it might sound like a threat. And that's where the offense of the gospel cuts our hearts down the middle. As I get to say, you have an opportunity to not be in control of your life. And you get to go, no way. 
or you get to go, thank God that I don't have to be. And that's about a posture of humility. It's about wrestling together. It's about remaining in community to get to that place. It's not somewhere you just go, oh yeah, for sure. We wrestle through these things together. It's not a magic moment. But we're not going to let go of this idea that we are surrendering control to Jesus. So here's what I think, here's what giving is for me. Giving is a celebration of my freedom from my kingdom of sin and self. I treat it as a celebration. I can give willingly out of the joy of my heart because God is Lord of it. It's a celebration. And then a bunch of cool things happen, you know, with the money that I give. God builds his kingdom and he he tends to be a really good steward of his own stuff. I don't always understand it, but it's not me anymore. It's not me anymore. The last thing I'll say is every time we give, we get to lean on some real promises. When we give, we don't just, when we hoard, there's no promises to lean on besides what you've drummed up in your self-esteem or ability. And if you're like me, that is a scary place to be. I don't want to, I, I don't want that to be the promise I lean on. I'm in charge. That's a scary promise. Especially if you have hopes and dreams and want to see the kingdom advanced, like, I'm going to do that? I'm going to do that with my own control? No. We get to lean on real promises that are just all through scripture about provision. Like if, you know, if he takes care of the birds, he's going to take care of you. Uh, Our father gives good gifts. Uh, We have eternal inheritances that are, like, you just can just read scripture now going, okay, after I surrender my heart, scripture just becomes, that's part of what I get to believe in, and that's where I get to anchor my heart, and that's what's coming my way, and that's, it's it's salvation. And so in conclusion, uh, as you wrestle through what role money plays in your discipleship, which means what role money plays in your Uh, following of Jesus, which is to say your enthronement of him, I would say it must play something. Say it must play something. And I would encourage you to not find numbers that make sense to you, not find investments that you can guarantee payback on, not find things that you've been in control in, but you would use this kind of construct to go, Lord, what are you... How are you trying to enthrone yourself more in my life through this? How are you trying to become more in charge, have more authority to lead me into the promises that you've said? This is what we're being invited into. And so let's have an attitude like that early church. Let's have an attitude that goes, man, if he's in charge, everything's his. This is fantastic news. What's it going to cost me? And so you have people selling land and bring it to it, you know, bring it to the church from time to time when there was need. And you just see people that are free. They're free of their own control. They're free of their own striving. They're free of their own ability to make it all work. And they're surrendered to Jesus. And I agree with you that it's a scary place sometimes. And it doesn't always feel like roses to go, I'm going to give it to you again. But the Lord says, test me in this. And it's the only thing he says, test me in. He says, watch me provide for you. And it takes every ounce. I'm, 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 not, I'm not kidding you. It takes every ounce of faith for me to stand up here and say, God is going to take care of you if he is in charge of your life. I don't know why that takes so much. It shouldn't. That's a very simple sentence that we say all the time. And it's on all the, you know, 
journals on the top. God's going to take care of you. Surrender to him and he's going to take. And then we start talking about money. And that sentence becomes a little bit more challenging to say out loud. Why? Because we've segregated the two again. I'm going, you have my whole heart and then my bank account's over here. And God is saying, I don't want sub-kingdoms in my kingdom for your sake. Don't have sub-kingdoms. It's for your, it's for your good. And so if you feel like you have one in possessions or money or anywhere else, really, possessions or money is a common one. But I would encourage you to run to the one who's in control that has your best interest at heart and that would long to lead you into life and freedom. Worship team, you guys can come up.